start that over. Amen. I forgot I took it off my my uh, ear earlier because I was talking and didn't want it to be a distraction. But uh, it's good that you're here this morning and uh, excited to be able to share the Word of God with you. What wonderful singing this 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 morning and and man, just. That song, that last song we just finished, what a great reminder that our God is so strong. I think sometimes we forget that in our lives, do we not? I mean, we hit the hard times and the difficulties and the bad doctor's reports and all of that, and we begin to, to really act like Israel did in the wilderness wanderings, like, where are you, God? We need to go back to where we used to be, and we forget that our God is strong, he's good, he's a provider, he loves us, he's gracious, he's kind, and even when we make a blunder of our lives, he is still there to pick up the broken pieces and to put them back together again. And so I'm excited to open his word and to see what he would have to speak to us this morning. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Last Sunday we began a series working through this letter, this pastoral epistle that Paul wrote to his young mentee in the faith, Timothy. And so we're going to pick up, last week we did a little bit of, little bit of an overview, we're going to really pick up in verse 2 and begin our journey over the next a few months through this wonderful, wonderful letter. A couple years ago, I think it's been two years now, Kara and I, my wife, had the opportunity while we were in Arizona for the Southern Baptist Convention to kind of go north a couple days early up into the Grand Canyon area. And so we made our way uh, that particular day. We flew into Phoenix, and it was hot, hot, hot. And uh, it was cool for Phoenix, though, but for us it was hot. It was like 97 degrees. It was June. We rent a car. We drive two and a half hours to the north. We get to Williams, Arizona, and it is 70 degrees, no humidity at 6,000 or so elevation. It was incredible. The next day, the next two days, we made our way into the southern rim area of the Grand Canyon, and it was just an amazing, amazing trip for us. Just a couple days there. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, you've seen. These are two pictures that I actually took with my phone there. I mean, it's absolutely one of the most beautiful places that we've ever been able to be a part of or to see. I mean, you look at these pictures, you see the combinations of the geological color and the erosions that's taken place over the years. All of that work together to decorate a canyon that is 277 river miles long. It's up to 18 miles wide in some places, and it's a mile deep. You look in those pictures, and you're looking way down the hill, and if you can see the river in places, it's like a thread. It's so far down there, and yet if you're on the edge of the Colorado River in the bottom, you would have this grand river with colossal rapids to go down. It's one of my, one of my bucket list things to do in my life is I want to take about a week-long trip and float the Grand Canyon from one end to the other. And so if any of you guys are up for that, let's make it happen. Five or six days on a, rap, on, a, on a raft going through the rapids, cooking the food that we catch out of the river, it sounds delightful. I say we get it done. You know, the Grand Canyon absolutely overwhelms our senses. The immense size, the colors, all of the things that you see when you get there. I remember uh, the, the one flood, the one thought that flooded my mind as I stood over the rim for the very first time was this. How did this happen? How in the world did this incredible canyon form? What was it that made this happen? It's almost like God took his finger and carved it out and made it beautiful. Well, the reality is, is it was carved out by water and wind. Those shaping influences carved out 
the beautiful Grand Canyon. And those two powerful forces cut into the sandstone and created the beauty that we get to enjoy today. Water and wind are amazing things. They're incredibly powerful. They do incredible work. They cut away the sediment in some areas, and they take it and they deposit it in other areas. And this morning, as we really begin to to look at this letter and begin working through this first chapter, we're going to see that a mentor is a whole lot like water and wind and what they do in a person and other people's lives. They cut away, they deposit, and so this is an incredible thing. What is a mentor? A mentor is an experienced and trusted advisor. It's one who trains and counsels others, and we have all, we've all got mentors in our life on some level. I mean, even the lowest level of, of your place of employment, you go to a new job, and one of your coworkers trains you and, and develops you and helps you learn the, the job and to learn the role and to understand your responsibilities. In many ways, that is a mentor. The person who gives you advice on parenting, the person you go to for advice on finances or relationships, that is a mentor in your life. The influence of a good mentor is absolutely invaluable. We need mentors on all levels of our lives. We need them specifically and especially in the area of our spiritual life. The mentor has a unique ability the unique authority to chisel away at those rough areas of our lives and while at the same time enriching and depositing into the more fertile places of our lives. And so the shaping influence of a mentor is a mighty and wonderful deposit in our lives. And that's what we see here as we see these first few verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was Timothy's mentor. He was the one who had discipled him in many ways. He was the one who had definitely built him up and encouraged him and fanned into being the the calling upon Timothy's life. He was a great mentor. Last week we learned that Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Timothy was to encourage him, to encourage him in his personal walk with the Lord Jesus. Paul also sought to spur him on in godly training. And we see that he used his life as an example. He says, look at me. I'm at the end of my life. I fought the good fight. I've I've kept the faith. And there is now laid up for me a treasure in heaven. Timothy, walk in my ways. Follow my path. Do as I have done. We also discovered last week that you don't wake up one day a success story. You don't spend your whole life as a Christian or any area of your life. And and it's just kind of going with emotions and just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. And, and, of course, you want to be successful, but you've done nothing to be successful. And then all of a sudden, one day, you wake up and it happens. That's not the way life works. No, you become a success when you prepare to be a success. You have to work at becoming a success story. When a person comes to Christ, the Bible tells us that all of his or her sins are forgiven. And at that moment, the person begins a journey with the Lord, a spiritual journey, walking with the Lord Jesus day by day in this process of sanctification as you are becoming more and more like Jesus, conformed into his image. To make that happen, you've got to have some rough edges rubbed off. You've got to have some things poured into your life. It's not an easy journey. It's a difficult journey, but it's a good journey. God expects us to be on this journey. God expects us as his children to walk away from the sin that easily entangles us and to move closer and closer toward holy living. 
His expectation and his demand for sanctification is not just out there saying you have to do this. He comes alongside us and couples it with grace. Things that he lovingly provides. Influential deposits that he uses to shape our lives. Paul here points out deposits to Timothy. He, he speaks as a personal mentor. He, he, he's going to show us that we're going to see next week the deposit of a godly mother. And then in a few weeks, we're going to see this deposit of the Holy Spirit and the gifts he gives us as a Christ follower. But this morning, we're going to look at a mentor's deposit. A mentor's deposit. Look there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 2 through verse 4. Paul says to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. It's very likely that Paul met Timothy when he first came to Lystra. We see that story in Acts chapter 14. It's quite possibly there that Paul, as he's in Lystra preaching the gospel, that it's the moment Timothy came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at the following verses next Sunday. We're going to see how Timothy was influenced by his mother and his grandmother in the faith. But also, these women would have been Jews, so they would have been enriching him from a Jewish standpoint, from an Old Testament standpoint. But all three of them come to faith in Jesus, likely when Paul preaches the gospel there in Lystra, his hometown. And by the time Paul visited Lystra a second time, we know that the brothers there, the the believers there, spoke highly of Timothy, that he was a man who was growing mightily in his spiritual walk. He was a man of maturity in his faith. And so Paul took this young man with him on his mission, his second missionary journey, and he continued with him after that. We also see in Paul's writings that Paul considered Timothy as his own spiritual child. 1 Timothy 1-2 speaks of that. 1 Corinthians 4 would speak of that. Paul dearly loved this brother. In fact, in the, church at, the letter to the church at Philippi, Paul commended Timothy for his character, for his care of others, and his ministry of the Lord. There's no doubt that Paul deeply loved and appreciated his young mentee. In fact, we learn an important life lesson here, a life principle for our relationships as we look at their relationship. Here's the, here's the principle. Every Paul needs a Timothy, and every Timothy needs a Paul. You say, what in the world does that mean? Paul needed somebody to pour his life into, and Timothy needed someone to pour their life into him. And so we all need that, and we need it at the same time. Paul was just as much need for someone to allow him to invest his life into them as Timothy needed someone to, be in, to invest in himself. And so you and I have those same needs. We need the spiritual deposit of a more mature believer in our lives, and we also need someone to pour our lives into. We need someone who will hold us to the truth of the Word of God. We need someone who will challenge us in our walk with Jesus, and we need to do those same things for others. We need to be an encouragement. We need to be an example. We need to be a source of accountability for others, even as we receive those things from a mentor. This is God's plan 
for making disciples. And that's what this is all about. You say, why in the world are we still here? I asked that question a few weeks ago. Why are we still here as Christians? We're here to make disciples of every nation, right? That's the goal of the Christian church. We're here to worship God, and as we do that, make disciples. Well, how do we make a disciple? 2 Timothy chapter 2, these two verses, tells us how. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here's the discipleship model Paul's describing. As someone is investing in me, I am making a deposit in someone else. That's what it's all about. As God has entrusted the word of God to me, now he's using me to entrust that word to someone else who's going to entrust it to someone else, who's going to entrust it to someone else. We're to pass on the word of God. We're to build up the body of Christ by making disciples. And the beauty and the benefit of biblical discipleship is this. You're never alone. God's never called us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He's never called us to do this Christian life by ourselves in isolation. He calls us into community. He calls us into a family. He calls us into this body of Christ. He speaks of it as a body of Christ. And so we're to be in the body, growing with the body, doing life together. We are, in fact, one together as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. We are one together in these mentor-mentee relationships, and I want us to take a closer look at this relationship between Paul and Timothy this morning. Let me give you a few things here. As a mentor to Timothy, Paul's deposit is characterized by three things. Let me share these with you this morning. They're in your bulletin. First of all, it's characterized by thankfulness. It's characterized by Thankfulness. Now, Paul started this letter as he does most letters. He's thanking, not thinking, but thanking God for some people. And here he says, I'm thanking God for you, Timothy. I thank God whom I serve as I remember you there in verse 3. Paul's expressing his love for his disciple by thanking the Lord for him. And he followed the example, he says, of his ancestors who were also thankful to God for the people that they were privileged to mentor. You say, how in the world do you know that? And who were these ancestors? Well, Paul's speaking of the people who came before him. He's talking about his, his daddy, his grandpa, the, his ancestors who came before him. Obviously, he's from a Jewish heritage. And being from a Jewish heritage, a strict Jewish heritage, his ancestors would have taught him and entrusted to him the teaching of the Torah. And you probably remember Deuteronomy chapter 6 and what it tells the the Jewish people to do. It says this, you're to take the word of God and you're to place it in every part of your life. It's to be on the doorpost of your house, supposed to be on the forehead. It's going to be in every facet of your life. Teach the word of God to your children. And so they took seriously this instruction and they deposited the word of God into their children and into the young people as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Paul's mentors had deposited the truth of God's word into his life, and he was thankful to have the opportunity and the ability to replicate the deposit now into Timothy's life and so many others. This morning, are you grateful for the opportunity and the privilege of investing in someone else's spiritual life? I mean, when you get up in the morning on a regular basis, and as part of your prayer time, as you thanking the Lord, God, thank you for the opportunity that I have to invest and so and so. God, thank you for those opportunities to be able to speak into this situation, to, to this thing that's going on in their life. Thank you, Lord, for, for allowing me and calling me to do this work of, uh, that many times I don't even feel uh, able to do or, 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 or uh, 
ready to do at times. Like I don't feel like I'm comfortable enough to do it, but Lord, you've called me to do it anyway. I feel like there's a hundred people that should be doing it, and yet you've given me the privilege. Lord, thank you for that. Are you grateful for the privilege of investing in others? I mean, think about discipleship, and you think about what it is. It's working with people, right? Working with people means what? It means it can get messy. Did you know that you're a mess? Did you know that your life is a mess and that you're sometimes crazy? Okay, I'm s- I just wanted to make sure that this half of the church is awake. I'm not so sure about this half over here. Discipleship can get messy. Because when you're there to encourage and, and fan the flame of, of the Word of God and the, and the life of God in a person's life, you're also fighting against those natural tendencies to sin, those natural tendencies to be fleshly and carnal. And so it can get messy at times. You're gonna, you just need to go into it like you would treat a child. I know that my little three-year-old is going to have dirty diapers, and I just better be ready for that. We've been trying to potty train for months, and, uh, and we're, we're getting the hang of it a little bit, but that's, they're still dirty diapers. And even in, when it's on the potty, guess who gets to, to clean the hiney? Mama does. But Mama's out of town right now. So it's messy. But it's always a blessing. It's always a blessing to see someone's life grow and mature and become more and more like Jesus. Paul's deposit was characterized by his thankfulness. It's also characterized by thoughtfulness. Verse 3 and 4, he says, I remember you constantly as I remember your tears. See, the apostle was never too busy for people. So many times in our lives, we're too busy for people. I just confess, there are times in my life that I'm too busy for people. Paul never was. He had an incredible ability to make the welfare of others his priority. And so when we think about that statement, you need to understand and remember where Paul is as he's writing this letter. Paul is setting, most likely, in the Roman Mamertine prison. He's already faced prosecution. He's awaiting execution. And yet his concern is not about himself. His concern is not about how much longer do I have to live, what's my situation going to be until that moment that the, the guillotine comes down and takes my head off or however I'm going to die. His, Paul's, Paul's concern is not about himself. His concern was for Timothy and his well-being. That's the heart of great mentor. You see, a good mentor focuses on the mentee and his or hers development. That's the priority. And this focus leads to a final characterization. Paul was prayerful. We see prayerfulness in his life. He says, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. So he's thankful, he's thoughtful, he's also prayerful. He constantly interceded on behalf of Timothy. Paul here uh, is praying for him. We know that Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray at all times, to pray without ceasing. And so he, he, he encourages the church to, to live in a state of being by which you are constantly in fellowship with the Lord. But here he, still, he tells Timothy that there is some moments, regular strategic moments in my life, Timothy, where I am praying for you. I am contending before the Lord for you on your behalf. He's setting aside these designated times for prayer. And this is a practice that we should model because it was a practice that not only did Paul model, but Paul learned it from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, and in other places that Jesus would oftentimes pull away for times of prayer. Strategic, regular moments of prayer. Paul was prayerful for Timothy. And it made a difference. I just want to throw a thought out 
before we move a step further. Just imagine what God would do in the lives of people that we have the privilege of mentoring if we prayed for them strategically and regularly like Paul did. Maybe you do. God bless you if you do. I hope you do. I, I encourage you to do that. But just think about it. If we took moments very strategic and very regular in our lives to kind of pull away from everything and simply focus on the people we're investing our lives in, to pray for them to God. Paul was a mighty mentor. So what motivated him? What were the dynamics that motivated Paul to do this? What drove his thankfulness and his thoughtfulness and, and his prayerfulness? Why was he so committed to investing his life in Timothy as well as in others? I mean, sometimes you look at Paul's life and you think, I don't know even how I could get 50% to where you are, Paul. What is it that drove you? What was the motor behind all of this? Let me give you two things. Paul's desire to invest himself specifically in Timothy was driven by these two dynamics. Number one, peaceful condition before God. He had a peaceful condition before God. He said in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. His conscience was clear. Now, he wasn't sinless. Paul was just like you and I. In fact, uh, Paul, I think, had a temper on him. Because if you read there and after the second missionary or the first missionary journey, Second missionary journey, when, uh, when John, after John Mark had left and then wanted to go back out, and Paul and Barnabas had this disagreement, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that disagreement just to watch, because I can just see Paul just mm, coming after him with some serious anger. He was an A-type personality, and so uh, that's probably the way his personality was. So he was not sinless, we know that. No one is sinless, but Paul was guiltless. And all of this was due to the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. It wasn't that Paul was this incredible man in and of himself. He was incredible because God was incredible in him. It was the deposit of the gospel which produced a strong desire for for Paul to love God, to love others, and thus invest himself in Timothy. Paul here was not walking in sin. As he says, my conscience is clear. Jesus said, changed his life. Jesus had transformed his heart, but he also was walking closely with God. You see, I believe one of the reasons that we today stray away or stay away from discipling that sort of relationship is because we understand that we can't hold on to sin and grow closer to Jesus. We can't hold on to our lifestyle that would be a part or contrary to Christ and try to lead others toward holiness. And so subconsciously, I believe we know that, that the two don't go together. And you can't lead others toward holiness while you're walking away from it yourself. Paul had a clear conscience. Second dynamic was that he had a personal love for Timothy. We see this in verse 4. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Evidently, the last time Paul and Timothy were together, there were tears. So Paul sits at this Roman prison, that's the image he has on his mind. That's the the picture that's before him. He remembers Timothy's tears. Now, we may read this from our 21st century, uh, uh, um, I was going to say sanctified, but that's definitely the wrong word, sophisticated mind in their Western culture, and we say, why in the world is he crying? Don't you know, Paul, men don't cry, especially those sorts of things. But back then... This was a culturally acceptable thing. But who cares if it's culturally acceptable? These two men loved each other as brothers in Christ, as mentor and mentee. 
So Paul longed to see Timothy so that he could be filled with joy. See, he didn't disguise his own pleasure at the prospect of seeing his good friend. We think about partings when we go our separate ways and we have to say goodbye. Many times they're painful, but the tears that we shed are really a pledge of greater joy at the possibility of a reunion. We shed tears now with a hope that there's going to be a reunion later on. Paul invested himself in Timothy. He loved Timothy all because of Christ. He loved Timothy, invested in Timothy because Jesus had changed his life. And, and Jesus had cleared his conscience. Jesus had opened his heart to love others the way Christ loved him. These two dynamics enabled him to do this incredible thing, to be a mentor to Timothy. And the same is true for you and I today. If you know Christ, according to 1 John five twelve, he has deposited his life into your life. He has changed your life. He has given you the capacity to love and to serve others the way you've been loved and the way you've been served. And so you, as you grow in your relationship and you understand more and more how much God loves you and all the things that he looks past as he loves you, then that opens up the ability for you to do the same thing to someone else. You don't see all their blemishes. You don't see all their mistakes. You don't see all their blunderings. You see with gracious eyes someone and their potential. That's what Paul was doing with Timothy. I'm going to share a few things in just a moment that will point this out a little bit more clearly. But Paul and Timothy were very different people. Paul, like I said, was a more A-type personality, a strong man, a, a diligent man. I mean, a guy that you would never get to say uncle. He's never going to submit on the mat except to Jesus. Timothy, on the other hand, struggled. Shyness, introvertedness, timidness were the characteristics of his life. And so if in his flesh, Paul w was trying to mentor this young man, he would have walked the other way and said, I don't have time for this weakling. I got better things to do. I got bigger fish to fry. But because Paul had learned to love like Jesus loved, he was willing to invest himself in this brother. This leads to a crucial question about discipleship. What do you do in this relationship? The short answer is love and prayer. Love your mentees well, pray strategically and regularly for them. This is what we see Paul doing for Timothy. And as he loved, as he prayed for Timothy, he helped this young man in three areas. So discipleship touches three areas, and I want to share these with you, and then we'll land the plane, God willing, on time, which is a miracle. Only happens on Easter. Three areas that discipleship touches on. Number one, calling. Discipleship touches on calling. We're going to study verse 6 in a couple weeks in detail. But for now, let me just say this. I want you to see that Paul encouraged Timothy to use the gifts God had given him. He says, Timothy, I want you to fan in the flame on those gifts that God's put in your life, the things he's gifted you with to use for ministry and service to the Lord. Young believers need ongoing assurance. Young believers need the approval of a more seasoned veteran in the faith to walk alongside them. They need mentors. I mean, think about what a young, uh, a young believer is going to do. It's going to be a lot like a young kid. They're going to lack confidence. They're not going to have the confidence to go and do what God's called them to do. They're going to waver at times because of that lack of confidence, because of that lack of experience. They're going to get tripped up by sin. They're going to get tripped up by sin that an older, more seasoned veteran in the faith is not going to be tripped up by. They're going to become distracted. I mean, you, if you've raised kids or you're raising kids right now, you know that the attention span of a child is about a millisecond, right? 
I mean, you, you're talking to them, you're trying to help them think of something, and they're in la-la land. They gave you three seconds and they're gone, right? The same is true for an immature believer. They get distracted by the things that around them, the things in this world, good and bad things. So they're going to need someone wiser and stronger in their faith to remind them of what is important. They need someone to be there to point the way. They need to be redirected back to the calling of God on their lives. This is what Paul is doing for Timothy. The young pastor is inexperienced. It seems that he had some physical health struggles that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He was also timid and shy by nature according to 1 Corinthians 16. And so we might call him an introvert. It would have been easy for Timothy to consider quitting since he was not like Paul. And so you put yourself in Timothy's shoes. He looks at this giant of the faith called Paul, who is this, this incredible theologian, this incredible church planter. He's a missionary. The dude's been shipwrecked, stoned. He's been literally left for dead in the ditch, gets up and walks back into the city. That's who Paul is. And so Timothy could look at Paul and say, I am nothing like that. I might as well just go to the dugout. I, I struck out, right? But Timothy has an encourager. Timothy has a Paul there to come alongside of him and say, no, brother, you're not like me. God's called you to be you. God's gifted you in the way he's gifted you. You're a unique person, and so understand your call. Remember your call. Come back to the call of God on your life. These men were different. Paul was mature. Paul had a lot of experience. Paul was physically resilient. Paul was lion-hearted. I mean, he, he, he was bold and courageous, even in the, in the face of his own friends. I mentioned a few weeks ago that there was a moment where there, Peter's wavering in, in how he approached and, and presented himself in different groups of people, and Paul called him on the carpet for it. I mean, here's Peter, the, the man who preached the Pentecostal sermon, one of the great pillars of the church there, and Paul calls him on the carpet. He was lion-hearted, and yet he allowed himself to be poured into this young man who was so different to remind him of his call. Discipleship touches on the call of God on a person's life. And it's not just vocational ministry. It's the call of God to be with Jesus daily. It's the call of God to be a, a, a discipler yourself, to be a small group leader, to be a servant in whatever capacity God is calling you to. A discipleship always brings us back to live out our calling. Second thing it touches is character. We see in Paul's letters to Timothy that he urged Timothy to pursue godliness, to pursue endurance in the faith, to pursue love and all the other Christ-like qualities. The purpose of discipleship is not Bible information. So when we think of discipleship, it's not just you and someone else or you and a few getting together and we're just going to read Scripture, memorize Scripture, and it's all about the fact that we want to pass or to win the next Bible trivia contest. That's not what it's about at all. That's Pharisaicalism, right? That, the Pharisees, that's what they did. It's about life transformation. We want to get in the Word so that the Word gets into us. So we want to study the Word. We want to call one another up to, a, to the standard of the Word in our life. And this necessitates accountability. Most Christians, and I would say this, most men, most male Christians push against this. We don't want to be held accountable. We don't want someone speaking into our life. We don't want to give them the privilege to, to be able to speak over us and to, and to hold our feet to the standard of holiness. We push against this 
concept of discipleship because we just don't want accountability. And yet without it, the relationships required for it, you will be easy prey for the enemy and you will never mature in your faith. If you don't allow someone to hold you accountable in your faith, you'll never grow very far. Did you just hear what I said? If you don't allow someone else to have the privilege and the authority to speak into your life, you'll never grow to where you need to grow spiritually. You just won't. I've shared this quote with you before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor during the uh, Holocaust days of Germany, said this, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over that person. The reason we need someone that's close in our life who's speaking into us and we're speaking into them is because we need to have someone there to keep us close to the fire. If we get isolated, think of a, 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 of a, of a, a fire pit. Think of a campfire those logs fall off the flame. They fall away from the coals. And what begins to happen to those, those, those logs that are on fire? They begin to get cooler and cooler and cooler. But if you keep them close to the fire, they're stoked red hot, right? We need that sort of accountability of people in our lives speaking truth over us, holding us to the standard of holiness. And so being in community with others provides this sort of protection and support. It enables us to pursue godly character. And the disciple maker seeks to move the mentee in that direction. So discipleship touches calling. It touches character. Thirdly, it touches competency. Paul here is coaching Timothy on ministerial needs such as how to respond to people. It's what he's writing this letter to do. Chapter 2, he's going to speak to this. He's coaching him on how, how to study the Word of God and how to do it diligently. He's coaching him in, in chapter 3 how to preach the Word faithfully, to be ready in season and out of season, always ready to give that defense for the gospel, and then how to do the work of, a, of an evangelist constantly in his life. Not just on Sundays, not just on, on uh, once a year or whatever, every single day, doing the work of evangelists. He's coaching him, helping him to become competent as a Christ follower. And that's our job. As a disciple maker, we must instill confidence and competence in our mentees. Mentors need to provide opportunities to, to exercise their gifts in service. Here, if you're a small group leader, just listen up for a second. If you're the lead leader in your small group and you have an assistant teacher that only teaches when you're out of town, you're doing it wrong. Your small group needs to be organized in such a way that you're bringing up people underneath you, right? You're giving them opportunities to serve. You're giving them opportunities to learn and to grow. And you should take it even a step further. Have conversations. When those other assistants teach, man, how did, how did I do? Here's, here's a couple things that I saw. Here's some wonderful things you did. Here's some things you probably could do better. Train, coach them up to become better and more equipped in their service to the Lord and the Lord's people. That's what disciples do. They need to be a coach who trains mentees in their calling, in godly character, as, as well as in competency. I began with the image of the Grand Canyon and the beauty there and how the water and the wind over centuries has been used as this mighty force to shape the landscape. The water and the wind strip away and they deposit. They do both of them. They cut into the hard areas and they soften and fertilize the fertile areas. 
Their shaping influence creates a beautiful and fertile landscape for all of us to enjoy. And in the same way, a mentor is a mighty force in the life of a mentee. The mentor models, the mentor equips, the mentor encourages, and even sometimes rebukes. His or her shaping influence is like water and wind chiseling away the rough places and cultivating the fertile ones. And we all need a mentor's deposit in our lives. This morning, if you don't have someone who's speaking into your life, and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to find someone and say, man, or ma'am, if you're a woman. Let's just, pre- pre- let's just say that right now. You need, if or you're a man, you need another man speaking into your life. If you're a woman, you need another woman speaking into your life. It's dangerous to cross those, so please don't do that. But you need someone speaking truth in your life. You need someone holding you up. You need someone encouraging you and fanning the flame in your life. And listen, let's take it a step further. You need to be that for someone else. You need to be that for someone else. You need to be a discipler and a disciple E, if you will. You have these relationships. I want to encourage you to get them if you don't. How, you say, how in the world do I get those relationships? Well, first of all, begin to pray. God, I really want what the pastor's been talking about this morning. I need that in my life. Never had it. Let's be honest. Most Christians in the church today, ours and most others, have probably never been formally discipled the way we're talking about. Everything you've learned, you've learned just by sitting in church, going to a small group, maybe reading a book here or there, going to a conference. That's how we have we've allowed discipleship to evolve over the last several decades. But the great need in your life is to be in a closer relationship. And so just begin to pray, Lord, lead me to someone. And as he begins to identify that person or that group in your life, go to him and say, here is the need in my life. I believe God wants me to be in a discipleship relationship. Would you consider being my disciple maker? Would you, would you consider discipling me in the faith? Just have that conversation. And if you're on the other side, you say, again, Lord, I need to invest my life in someone. So God, lead me to a person or a group of people that I can be in this relationship with. You just begin to have that conversation with the Lord. And as he brings those names to your mind as you're in church and whatever, over the next several weeks, he's going to begin to, to bring those people to you. And you just ask the question then again, hey, man, I need to invest my life. Would you be willing to join me in a discipleship group for the next whatever weeks, next whatever months? And just have those conversations, ask those questions, but begin with prayer. God's called us to be disciples but you can't be a disciple unless you're first in relationship with Jesus. Amen? We all know that, right? You can't be a disciple until you first come into relationship with Jesus. That's the first step. And so this morning, if you've never made yourself uh, available to the Lord, if you've never said, Lord God, I've sinned, I've, I, I've rebelled against you, and, and because of that I understand the word tells me I'm under the just penalty for that sin, I'm separated from God, but I want to be forgiven of that sin, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. If you've never said that to the Lord, ask for forgiveness and trust in Him as Lord and Savior, today's the day for you. Maybe this morning as a believer you're just saying, I, I, I want to begin praying for someone to either be a discipler in me, or for someone I can disciple, maybe this morning you need to take the first step and let's just uh, sprawl out across here and begin to pray and ask the Lord to, to open our hearts and lead us in that direction. But our, our relationship with the Lord is never going to grow past our discipleship relationships. I want you to understand that this morning. That is a crucial, crucial part of our journey and walk with the Lord Jesus. So can we, can we pray to that end?
in this time of response, let's ask the Lord to do some business in our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning for um, this example that Paul gives us of this incredible relationship. And Lord, I thank you that in my own personal life, I've had some Pauls. I've had some people who, over the years, have spoken into my life on a regular basis. I've had men who pray for me, even today. I thank you for the relationship that I have with some of those men. God, I thank you that the difference that you've allowed them to, to make in me and how you've used them to influence me and grow me and challenge me and, and even at times rebuke me. So, Lord, I'm thankful. And God, I thank you for the relationships you've given me over the years to be able to, to re- replicate that uh, with others. And I pray that that would continue. Even now, I pray that you would begin to even put more men on my heart open up more doors, more opportunities to invest myself in them. God, I pray for a movement in our church where we're not satisfied with just casual Christianity. But, Father, we want to be red hot for Jesus. We don't want to be in isolation. We don't want to be away from the fire. God, we want to be in the fire. We want to be red hot with others for Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we move into this time of response, God, speak to our hearts Help us to be obedient to what you're calling us, what you're speaking to us about. Lord, if it's sin that needs to be confessed, God, may that happen today. If it's, if it's a person, man, woman, a child, doesn't matter, who needs a relationship with Jesus, may today be the day of salvation for them. God, others that need to make decisions for the Lord, I pray that they would do that. Lead us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.